This podcast is brought to you by Business Radio, powered by Wharton, originally airing on Sirius XM. Welcome to our Behind the Markets podcast. I'm your host, Jeremy Schwartz. Alongside Wharton Finance Professor Jeremy Siegel, we tackle the latest market trends every week on Business Radio, powered by the Wharton School, Sirius XM, Channel 132. Our guest consists of experts like the world's leading authority on long-term economic growth, Bob Gordon. We will continue to see jobs created rather than destroyed. Former chair of the Federal Reserve, Janet Yellen. I mean, I don't think either of us ever expected that we would live through a financial crisis. Or even the head of the Digital India Foundation, Arvind Gupta. The reason that people are talking about India is massive digitization and financial inclusion that we have done over the last couple of years. Enjoy this week's show. Welcome to a special edition of our Behind the Markets podcast. This is Jeremy Schwartz, Global Head of Research at Wisdom Tree. We're joined today by Corey Hofstein, co-founder, Chief Investment Officer of Newfound Research, a quantitative investment manager. Corey is joining today, co-host. We're talking to Nikhil Shamapat from the Twitter famous account Squish Chaos. Uh, Nikhil authored one of the more interesting papers on Ether I've come across talking about a triple having in Ether. Uh, it's taken a bit of a cult following for this show of force. And uh, Corey, thanks for being the first one to flag the paper from your Twitter account. And Squish, welcome to Behind the Markets. How did you first come to study crypto so closely? Yeah, thanks so much for having me. I really appreciate the opportunity. Um yeah, so I, I got into investing just broadly when I was 15 years old, like just looking at stocks, uh, looking at the numbers changing and in class and things like that. Um, I took a break, uh, in the back half of college of studying philosophy and the early part of medical school, just because medical school can be pretty heavy. Um, but, uh, you know, when COVID hit, I was really involved in a lot of volunteering in, in March in New York. Uh, but then around late April, early May, uh, a lot of that stuff started to cool off as far as at least the volunteering we could do. So I had a lot of time on my hands and we didn't restart uh, rotations for a few months. Um, and that time period, that like late April, early May, was also when a lot of hype was building for Bitcoin's having event, which happened mid-May. Uh, so that led me into looking at Bitcoin. Uh, I went down like a monetary policy rabbit hole first and got really into like macro uh, but then eventually kind of came back to uh, crypto and expanding my focus a little bit to Ethereum. You know, Jeremy, crypto can be such a polarizing topic. Whenever you bring it up, there are people who have strongly held macro views. Uh, there are people who think it's all a scam. There's people who think it can take down the U.S. monetary system. What attracted me to this paper when I, I first came across it was the fact that the entire thesis that Nikhil lays out has really nothing to do with some fundamental value or economic theory. It's all just based in supply and demand. So I would really urge listeners to keep an open mind here because I think there's some really fascinating flow dynamics that are truly applicable to all markets, but maybe something we can see really accelerate in the crypto space this year. Before we get into all that, though, Nikhil, I want to sort of start with setting the table, not with Ethereum, which is really where we're going to go, but with actually with Bitcoin. And so for those who are maybe haven't done the deep dive into how the crypto space works, can you talk about Bitcoin as a starter and sort of take us through the proof of work system that's implemented to secure the blockchain? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, it's a great starting place. It's where I started. And honestly, it's, I think, where uh, the entire kind of crypto universe started. So, you know, blockchain technology can be such a vast space to understand. So for now, we're just going to work under the assumption that the goal was to create digital money. OK, the goal of the crypto project. And that's I think a lot of people in the space would think that's like limiting um, but I think we're just going to use that as a working assumption and kind of go from there. So if you're trying to create digital money, um, one thing that you encounter very early is called the double spend problem. Uh, so, so let's take cash. If I, if I were to uh, you know, pay you for a product, I just hand you the cash. I can't spend that cash twice because in paying for it, I don't have the cash anymore. Now you have the cash, right? Um, with digital files, that can be harder, though. 
you can just make copies, right? So, so if, if you think like fraud in the uh, physical cash space is a problem, like digital cash, it's like a non-starter. How do you get off the ground? What we've seen, obviously, is that digital money has worked. We have credit cards. We have, uh, you know, online bank accounts. So the way that works is we have central providers take a, you know, MasterCard, a Visa. And when I swipe my credit card, they will do the cash transfer for me. They'll reduce the uh, amount of money in my account, increase the amount of money in your account. So if I try to spend that same dollar bill twice, uh, Visa will say, no, you don't have that money anymore. Um, and, but that's the only reason that, that it, you know, digital money can have that property that physical money has. You have to have that central uh, provider, the bank, the, you know, uh, the credit card service who, who takes care of making sure that the digital money has that property that, that physical cash also has, right? Um, so, the innovation that the blockchain tried to do and that Bitcoin tried to kind of provide was decentralizing that. So that means Visa or, you know, Wells Fargo, right? These are centralized organizations that are taking on that responsibility. And if you have like, you know, if, if we have a news release come out that Visa was hacked, right? That's a one single point of failure where, uh, you know, our, our monetary system is, can be fragile. Uh, there's also other points of fa- failure, right? If, if I need to get a loan, uh, right now in a centralized system, I need permission from Wells Fargo. Uh, but maybe why does Wells Fargo have all that power if other people would be willing to give me the loan? So there was this idea that maybe we can have a decentralized system. Maybe instead of having one point of, of, uh, one guardian for making sure that digital money works like real money. We could uh, spread that out and have a kind of a larger economic system that provides that. Um, so the way that how do, so how does this all work? Um, so the blockchain is is focused on this idea of a ledger. The idea being that if you want to make sure that uh, I can't use the money twice, you have to document every transaction. And you have to make sure that those transactions really happened and that no one can argue about whether they happened. So it's like, I can't spend the money twice because everyone can point to that transaction and say, you don't have the money to spend, right? So that's what people call like the ledger. Uh, and in blockchains, it's a public ledger and it's maintained by a group of, of nodes, we'll call them. Um, so these nodes, will, in Bitcoin, we call them miners. Uh, and the miners... They have, they play a role of make, making sure that the ledger of transactions is true, uh, and accurate. Uh, and they also validate new transactions. Um, and so that's important because it, let's say, you know, there's so much money in Bitcoin right now. Um, let's say that I wanted to kind of create fraud on the Bitcoin network. What I could do is I could try to, to like usurp the network. I could try to get a majority interest in it and say, no, like these transactions never happened. Um, and so the goal of the miners is to, is to maintain that security and make sure that, uh, no single person can go in and, and, and have this kind of exert and exert like this undue force on what's kind of true. The way that there's, there's two things here that are important. So these miners need an incentive. They're providing a service, right? So you have like thousands of people running this mining algorithm on their computers. They're providing the service and they need an incentive. So one way they get that, it's called block reward, which is they get issuance. They're issued essentially new shares of Bitcoin, you could say. Um, and the other way they do it is for every transaction they validate, uh, they get tr- the transaction fees uh, are paid to the miners as well. Um, the other element of this is how do you prevent uh, everyone from just starting a new miner? Because it would be really bad if, if you know, Bill Gates could just take billions of dollars and, and just create a million new miners and usurp the system and steal all the money. Uh, and so in order to prevent that, uh, mining is expensive. You have to get computers that are really powerful and they use a lot of heat and electricity. And it's not just a simple thing to do. Um, so it, it can be worth it, but it is very capital intensive. Uh, and that is part of what secures the system. It's part of what gives people incentive to secure the system. Um, and it kind of allows this system of money to be maintained. 
Although your example there, if, if Bill Gates has unlimited capital, it sounds like he still can get all these computers and uh, try to t- take over the system. Yeah, so it's it's a great case of like you have to think about and and I'll be honest, the real the real argument tends to not be around Bill Gates. It tends to be like, uh, like China, exactly. Yeah, Mike Green will talk about like, well, why can't China just just go in and do that? And it's first of all, I would just say that's actually a genuine concern. Uh, so we'll kind of talk about different ways of securing blockchains, right? Uh, but proof of work. The, the key to securing that blockchain is the ratio between the amount of money you have to spend for that computing power to the amount of value in the network. Right? So if the network, if the amount of Bitcoin is worth a trillion dollars right now, and you only have to spend $5 billion to secure the network, uh, that's like that ratio represents the security. If I talk to you about a new technology where that ratio is higher, where you have to spend $10 billion to get the security of a trillion dollar network, then I would say that network's more secure, right? Uh, and that's just important because later we'll talk about how Ethereum has different characteristics around security. Um, but it is important, you're right, to think like, you know, if it costs, I think I, I think I remember the estimate was $5 billion, right? Uh, to, to approximate the computing power of Bitcoin network. And as Bitcoin becomes, has a market cap higher than a trillion dollars, the incentive to just, put that $5 billion down and attack the network, it does go higher. And on the flip side, the incentive to mine and put the money and, and just be an honest miner also rises. So it's, there's some complexity to that, um, but it's a, it's a fair point. So, you know, we talked about Bitcoin as, as a form of money. Corey talked about supply-demand d- dynamics, and, and gold is often referred to in the supply-demand dynamics as l- long as money. Let's talk about the halving, which impacts supply. And when you first got interested in Bitcoin was that May halving event. So let's talk a little bit about how that impacts the, the supply and, and, and ultimately prices. Yeah, so I guess I'll start by just explaining what the halving is. Uh, and then I'll explain a little bit about how people think about it. Um, so, so I mentioned that uh, in ret- as an incentive to secure the network, miners are given something called a block reward. So they perform these algorithmic calculations on their computers, uh, expend the money for electricity and generate heat. But in return, they are given this issuance, this new um, Bitcoin. Uh, and they get a certain amount um, But every four years, according to a pre-programmed algorithm, the amount that they get at this block reward is cut in half. Um, And it's not cut in half gradually. It is abruptly cut in half on a day called the Bitcoin halving. Um, So this is how when when Bitcoiners talk about Bitcoin having a a hard cap on supply at 21 million, that's how they achieve this. Because, yes, miners are getting new issuance but the amount they're getting is reducing by half every four years. And so you kind of achieve, you get this asymptote where the amount of circulating supply of Bitcoin, it gradually rises until it approaches uh, that 21 million, but it never goes higher than that. So that's what the halving is. Then there's a question of, well, and then I'll also say, um, just to kind of inform this, the miners, because they have these expenses, they have, taxes to pay, employees to pay, AC to run, like cooling systems, um, electricity bills. They have to sell a good chunk of their Bitcoin. Um, and as just an easy reference, I, I didn't include this in my report because it's a little complicated, but you can check the SEC filings of these Bitcoin miners. and You can see these businesses are incredibly capital intensive. They don't show a lot of cash flow profits. Like You're going to have a hard time finding free cash flow in a, in a Bitcoin miner. Uh, and that just reflects that they have a lot of expenses. They have to sell a lot of Bitcoin, right? Um, and so that's that's daily selling of Bitcoin is just going to come up. Um, later on as we talk about this. So why? So when Bitcoin halves, there's a, a decrease in the issuance to miners. Why does that cause this spike? Every four years, we see Bitcoin's price going up like 10x, um, sometimes more. Um, and so how is that related? Um, some people will say in the community that it's a narrative impact. So when you look at gold, when you look at other metals, uh, there is something called the stock to flow ratio, which is a ratio of how much gold is in circulation compared to how much is being mined every year. And that gives you a sense for how scarce gold is and gives you kind of a value for it. Some people will say, look, the, the May 2020 Bitcoin halving 
the stock to flow ratio of Bitcoin became higher than that of gold. Uh, that makes Bitcoin more valuable kind of on a monetary basis uh, as a store of value. And that's why the halving causes price to rise. Now, a lot of people who are familiar with markets take issue with this explanation because that is the kind of thing that should be priced in. Right? So we, we would know that this is going to happen. The stock to flow ratio would rise well in advance. And so there's no reason that three months after this happens every year, it should cause a, a massive increase in price. We should have seen this increase in price two years ago because this is algorithmically predictable. It's just absolutely certain that the halving will happen. Uh, and so we don't see that. So why? Um, there is a large community of Bitcoin uh, maximalists who will talk about how it, the phrase is the halving cannot be priced in, right? And, and a lot of people will look at that and be skeptical. They're like, that doesn't make sense. Everything, information can be priced in. And so a big part of my thesis is explaining why I think that the structural flows uh, prevent the halving from being priced in. Um, and the way that that works is if the miners have to sell 95% of their Bitcoin, um, that's a constant uh, flow of, of market sell orders on, on Bitcoin every day, right? And so uh, those sell orders have to be counteracted um, because each sell order is being met with an equal and opposite buy order. Um, and the day after the Bitcoin halving, the amount of sell orders for miners is cut in half. Because uh, miners are getting 50% less of this block reward, right? But unless something dramatic changes, uh, the buy orders have not been affected, right? So this is a concrete supply and demand dislocation. Now, the magnitude of this is a small percentage of the daily volume, right? So we're just talking about the amount of sell orders coming from miners, not from everyone. So that's going to be like 1% or less than 1% of the daily volume. Uh, being traded from Bitcoin, right? But it's a persistent effect because this selling has been happening every day for the last, you know, how many years? And so it, this effect is going to persist and be built into kind of like the equilibrium price. And if the price goes up 10%, there's no guarantee that uh, suddenly enough supply is going to emerge to kind of satisfy that um, unmatched demand. It's also predictable in direction. So uh, you know that they are sell orders and that sell orders are reducing. So you know that what's unmatched is the demand. You don't have to kind of recalibrate on which direction these flows are moving in. Um, so even though it's a small effect, it's persistent, long-term, and predictable in direction. Um, and I think that in a context of Bitcoin supply, where a lot of Bitcoin investors uh, there's a community called hodling, which is kind of community around buying and holding Bitcoin for the rest of your life, never selling. Uh, so in that context where there's such illiquid supply, it really uh, kind of accentuates the effect of this supply demand dislocation. Um, and I argue that at least the first part of the move in the halving, you know, maybe the first 50% move, maybe the first doubling in the price can be, uh, can be attributed to this effect. These hodlers are real. I mean, my brother who got into Bitcoin before me, you know, tells me he's always going to hold it. And I was like, you know, there could be a point where the last buyer is bought and he's, he's like, I, no, I'm a hodler. Well, this is what's interesting to me is this is sort of a ceteris paribus model, right? You're talking about there is a we're holding demand constant. Supply is decreasing. Basic economic theory tells us price has to go up. I'm curious, though, I mean, demand isn't going to be constant, right? So what is happening with demand right now? So it's interesting. So demand's not going to be constant. Even if you ignore the narrative, which we will we'll get back to that, but even if you just thought about it as kind of an abstract and like an asset, you don't know its unique characteristics. Um, part of my argument is that demand will fluctuate, but this this supply dislocation will not so it's like, so maybe on any given day, you'll have like um, a random like plus or minus 5% uh, of people buying, but you can guarantee that there'll be less people selling. So that means that's, this is why, you know, the day after the halving, like on the day of the halving, the price doesn't need to go up. If, if, if Bitcoin drops 3% on the day of halving, like I don't consider that to be evidence to falsify my thesis. Um, the key is that if there's, an up and down variation that 
you'll kind of gradually get this uptick in price because the supply dislocation is not varying. And so maybe on any given day, if there's reduced demand, the price won't change. But then inevitably, when there's increased demand, the price will go up. Um, so that's, that's abstracting out. Now we look at demand for Bitcoin in context, right? And that's where this narrative starts to matter. Because when the price goes up, uh, narrative tends to follow. And you'll notice, I think a lot of astute investors will notice how much Bitcoin investors focus on price. So, you know, as a joke, just check like Anthony Pompliano's Twitter page. Uh, there's like, you know, weekly announcements of Bitcoin's price going up. <laughs> and that's not something people do for every asset. Um, but it, it does really like crystallize that, that the price increasing is viewed by a lot of Bitcoin investors, and the narrative being spun is that it's, the price increasing reflects the adoption of Bitcoin as a store of value, right? And so my argument is that you get this, this supply-demand dislocation that, that accounts for the first part of the move. Uh, how much? Hard to say. Uh, we know that these hodlers who refuse to sell kind of accentuate the effect because a small supply demand dislocation in the context of all of this locked in supply can have a bigger effect. But I don't need to explain the 10x move. You know, so if, if this causes Bitcoin's price to go up 50%, then Bitcoiners will say, hey, look, I told you the halving could not be priced in. The halving happened. Three months later, price is up 50%. I'm right. And a lot of people are suddenly convinced. They're like, hey, look, it could have gone down. It didn't. Uh, you know, it was not priced in. This is a store of value now. And then the narrative takes over, right? And so then, and then it starts to other factors play, come into play where it's like, is Tesla putting it on the balance sheet? You know, is, is, is Square buying it? Is what's Elon Musk tweeting today? Right. And that's more speculative. Um, but I think that this sort of speculative, these speculative forces, uh, they aren't enough without that initial catalyst. And the bigger the catalyst, the more confirmatory the narrative is in, in kind of investors' minds. Does that follow? Let's, uh, let's shift from Bitcoin to the, the focus of the paper of, of ETH, ETH. Um, let's, let's contrast Bitcoin with ETH. What's the, what's the story? What's going on between the two? Yeah, so right now, uh, before anything has changed, so there's a few upcoming changes to Ethereum's network, but right now, um, both blockchains are called proof of work, which means all the dynamics around miners that I explained for Bitcoin, they're the same for Ethereum. Right? The key difference is Bitcoin has a hard cap. There's 21 million Bitcoin that will ever exist. And because of that, the amount of uh, Bitcoin that can be given to miners has to undergo these halvings or else you wouldn't be able to have the, the total amount of supply remain constant. Ethereum does not have any such hard cap. There's theoretically, right now, theoretically there's an infinite supply, and Ethereum gets a lot of critics for that. Um, and there's no halvings as a result of that, uh, because supply isn't hard capped, issuance just continues, and it is dilutive, right? Um, the other thing that's important to note is uh, Ethereum has smart contracts. Uh, and that just means that Ethereum is programmable. Um, and so rather than just being able to send it from person to person, the kinds of use cases and things you can do with Ethereum uh, are, are pretty broad, as broad as the developers are able to kind of be creative with it. Um, and so that's potentially a really interesting part of Ethereum. Um, and right now that's all built on a proof of work blockchain, just like Bitcoin. Um, so yeah, I think that covers the current state. Uh, the only thing I'll add to that is that you can also see that reflected on the market. So, uh, Ethereum without any halvings, uh, you know, went up more than Bitcoin in the last halving, uh, in the last Bitcoin halving event. Uh, and same thing here. It's like Ethereum has not undergone a halving. Um, Bitcoin's up quite a bit. Ethereum's been outperforming it. Uh, and I attribute that because you can look at the correlations. They're incredibly high. Uh, I think the market right now is treating Ethereum as like a higher beta Bitcoin, right? It's a smaller market cap. Uh, the correlations show that the investor base is treating them as the same. It just has a higher volatility in the same direction. Um, so that's, I think that's kind of a sense for where we're at with Ethereum right now. 
Now we've laid the foundation, right, of, of these supply and demand mechanics and how they can change and potentially affect the price of at least Bitcoin. The core thrust of your paper is that there are some upcoming changes in the way Ethereum is going to work that are going to materially affect supply and demand of Ethereum itself. So I want to start with this proposal called EIP-1559, which is, I don't know why you can't give it a better name. I guess that's the name we'll use. (laughs) But maybe for, for us and the listeners, you can walk us through what is it and what sort of impact is it going to have on the Ethereum network? Yeah, yeah, of course. Um, so, so first I'll start. So EIP-1559 is a like software update to uh, the Ethereum blockchain. It just changes uh, the way that transactions are processed. Um, and it has a lot of different, more technical things that change the way the user interface works and affect the way that developers think about things. So I'm going to put a lot of that to the side for now. Um, and if you're interested, you know, Google for it, you'll see there's a lot of a lot of stuff that's kind of packaged in. Um, but for my thesis, there's one key feature of EIP 1559 uh, that's important. And that is that it changes uh, the way transaction fees work. So currently, uh, if you do a transaction, you pay a fee. Uh, and that fee, um, if let's say that there's Let's say that there's 100,000 transactions and 1,000 miners. Uh, that fee allows miners to adjudicate between who gets their transaction processed first, uh, given there's only a limited amount of, of scale for these processing, right? So right now that fee goes 100% to the miners. Um, EIP 1559 says, no, going forward, only 30% of that fee will go to the miners, of that fee will be burned. And when I say burned, it means that the, in the same way that the Ethereum algorithm can issue new ether, uh, fee burning means the fee will just be deleted, uh, from the issuance. So that affects, um, the amount of supply, right? So if, if before a lot of this new issuance was coming from transaction fees, now, uh, 70% of that transaction fee, uh, or sorry, if before, a lot of this miner selling is coming from transaction fees where the miners are getting these transaction fees and selling them to, uh, to um, cover their expenses. Uh, now, miners are only getting 30% of what they used to be getting from these transaction fees. Um, I should clarify that's, that was an error earlier. They're not, the fees are not new issuance. Um, the fees are just coming from users who are trying to transact. Um, but, but the key point is these fees go to the miners and they sell them. And after EIP 1559, miners only have 30% of what they used to have. Uh, and so that selling pressure that I discussed earlier uh, will reduce quite a lot. Um, and I looked at just the effect of EIP 1559. Uh, the, there's a researcher, Justin Drake, who kind of put these numbers together, uh, did some really excellent research. And so with his spreadsheet, um, the selling pressure for miners will reduce by 30% just from EIP-1559. So remember that the Bitcoin halving has a 50% reduction. So this is less than one Bitcoin halving, right? It's like a mini halving event. Um, But again, it's it's the same kind of sell pressure decrease that you see in a halving event. Um, And that's going to, that should have a meaningful effect on price. Um, now, burning fee sounds like burning gas, you know, and, and people often talk about ETH, these gas fees. Is that the same fees as you're talking about here? Is it different fees? What are these gas that you hear about? Yep. So gas fees uh, are the name for the transaction fees, right? And so um, the the way that works is if, if there's a fixed amount of transactions that the network can process per hour, let's say, uh, and... Uh, everyone's trying to compete to get their transaction processed right now. Um, so right now the model is kind of like an auction. So it'll be like, okay, you propose I'll pay $5 for gas. Someone else says I'll pay $6 for gas. So their transaction would be, pr- would be processed by the network before, uh, before your transaction. Um, so that's what gas fees are. Uh, it's the amount of fees you're paying to kind of like, to kind of move your money. <laughs> um, and, and those are the fees that will get burned. So now if you're paying that $6, 
or let's say ten dollars. You're, you're paying that ten dollars uh, for gas. Uh, before the ten dollars would all go to miners, and they'd sell nine dollars of it. Right now, only three dollars is going to go to miners, uh, and they're going to sell like you know two and a half dollars of it. And so that sell pressure is going to go down materially, um, and that's that's where kind of my argument focuses. We've talked a lot about this proof of work model. The second big transition you point to in the paper is a move on the Ethereum network going from proof of work to this new concept of proof of stake. Can you contrast these two models for us and explain ultimately how they affect the supply and demand of Ethereum differently? Definitely. So um, the proof of work model, um, as I explained before, involves miners running these cryptographic calculations on computers, these calculations that cost a lot of electricity uh, and and computational power to do. That's the work, uh, the proof of work. The work is those computations. And that's done in order to secure the system and validate transactions. Um, But as you can imagine, doing these cryptographic calculations, it's not the most elegant approach to securing something. Uh, and this this is a critique that kinds of that kind of comes up in the like climate change narrative where they say like you're just basically like wasting electricity uh, in order to secure the blockchain. Um, so it's not the most elegant approach. Um, so with proof of stake, uh, the Ethereum developers are trying to come up with a much more elegant and efficient way to secure the blockchain without causing all of this excess waste. Um, and the way that this works is instead of Instead of taking, let's say I want to be part of securing a blockchain. Right now, I would take my money, I'd buy a computer, and I'd run it, and I'd, I'd have to pay for the computer, I have to pay for the electricity, and that uh, secures the network. And the reason I do that is I get paid uh, a certain amount of Bitcoin. In the proof-of-stake model, I can use, instead of a fancy computer, I can just use any cheap computer. So the the expensiveness of the computer is no longer a part of the security of the system. Um, but instead, I take my money and I buy Ether. So every, 16, every 32 Ether uh, is one validator node. And I put this 32 Ether up. It's called staking it. Um, and uh, because I've now put capital at risk, I can validate transactions and earn um, a reward for that. And so that's the same way that miners earn a block reward. Uh, you can earn a staking yield, right? So how does this help security? Well, now if there's evidence that I'm a malicious actor, that I've come in, bought a lot of Ether, and staked it all on these um, really easy validator nodes, um, well, if there's any malicious intent... They can, they can slash my Ether. So I've placed my Ethereum at risk. And uh, if I'm a malicious actor, they can say, no, you're a malicious node. The rest of the nodes disagree with you. And therefore, we're going to delete a third of your Ethereum, which makes it hard. Because if you, you, know, if you have to put $5 billion of Ether in uh, and you don't get this right, you just lost you know, $1.5 billion in the single attempt. It's not going to be easy for you to come back and attack it tomorrow with the same amount of money, right? And every attack you do, the harder it gets to attack again. Um, so that's, I, I think, a, a little simplified model. Obviously, there's a little bit more complexity there. Um, but it kind of gets at this. It's a game-theoretic approach to securing the network. And because of that, it's a lot more efficient. So the Ethereum researchers uh, calculate that you know the, the amount of dollars that are required to put up in this way to secure the same network. It's like an order of magnitude uh, smaller. It's much much more efficient security. You're getting uh, a larger amount of of the network secured for a smaller amount of money. Um, So why is that important? Well, the more efficient the security model, the less that you need to incentivize these stakers. So uh, if, if I need less people to stake, then I can pay the issuance, I can pay that like block reward to the stakers, but I need fewer of them, right? So I can pay a smaller block reward. Um, and so if, if I'm getting a certain amount right now of block reward sent to the miners to incentivize them to secure the network, then when we change to proof of stake, I need 
significantly less block reward to be sent. And remember, if that block reward is being sold by the miners and that sell pressure, that means under a proof of stake model, I need significantly less sell pressure on the system in order to get that same security. Uh, and that has a big implication on the supply and demand dynamics. Now, you know, one of the things people talk about with Bitcoin is how there's like no one in control. There's no one person who can make changes. In this case, you have changes happening. Does everybody have to agree to these changes? How does this all play out? Do, you know, do these miners all all have to agree? What if they don't? Yeah. So I want to pause here and say this is absolutely a risk. Uh, it's brought up so many times, especially by a lot of the Bitcoin proponents, because one advantage of Bitcoin is that no changes are ever going to happen, uh, you know, since the inception. And that's a huge part of the argument for Bitcoin is like, this is a sure thing. We know what this is. And that's what makes it investable. Right. And, and I agree with the idea that the degree of changes, these are major changes that are happening to the Ethereum network. That makes it um, a much riskier asset. And in theory, I want to say that that's the risk that you're going to be compensated for taking on, the risk that these changes don't get through. Right. So just that's a preface. Uh, I'll also say the mechanics of these like coding updates get into a little bit of the technical details that I don't have. But ultimately, yes, it's the miners who who kind of like secure the network. And it's fascinating to think about like, why would the miners, like what incentive, the miners whole business model is to, uh, you know, secure, uh, is, sorry, it's to have a proof of work uh, approach. And so if we go to proof of stake, they go out of business, why would they ever let this go through? Um, and so, you know, I, I really recommend that you listen to the Ethereum experts on this. But what I'll say is that it has to do with the game theory. And basically it has to do with you know, if the if the Ethereum economy, uh, not the miners, but if everyone who's developing you know decentralized finance apps and developing anything on this economy, if they say like what we want is proof of stake and we're going to have it one way or the other, whether it's on this blockchain or a fork, which which means that they will copy the blockchain code but create it in a different avenue, they say we're going to have this one way or the other. Uh, then that threatens the value of Ethereum as we know it for the miners. So the miners are caught between a rock and a hard place. They could say no, but then that's going to threaten the value of the Ethereum they're mining if if everyone migrates somewhere else. Because right? right now we have a shelling point. Shelling point, it's like um, everyone agrees that Ethereum is the place to do this, and that's why every, Ethereum has 90% of the developers. Everyone loves the Ethereum ecosystem. If the miners rebel, there's nothing to stop everyone from deciding, okay, we can find a shelling point around a proof of stake solution because that's the future, right? And so the miners, there's game theory involved where the miners are thinking about like, what is the best way to maximize our profits in the short term and the long term? And it's, and the reason this is a little complex and I won't delve into the details is because the game theory actually is very different for something like uh, EIP 1559, which does not eliminate the mining profits. It just reduces them. Uh, so the, the arguments around that are, are one kind of set of arguments. And then there's an entirely different set of arguments around proof of stake, which actually does completely eliminate uh, that. And so, so there's dynamics around, well, if, if miners aren't profitable, do they have any Ethereum uh, on their balance sheets? Uh, if they have managed to maybe sell more than they needed to upfront to accumulate for the upcoming halving, maybe they have a lot of Ethereum now and they don't want the price of Ether to crash. Maybe if they disagree, if they if they rebel, the price of ether will crash and they won't. They'll lose a lot of money. Um, so the, there's a lot of dynamics around that. Um, I just want to kind of reaffirm that that people who raise this are absolutely onto something. This is not a fake risk. I'm not going to you know hand wave this one away. You're if you're choosing to invest based on my thesis, you are handicapping the likelihood that these events go through. Uh, it's like merger arbitrage, right? You're, you're saying if these events don't go through, the value of Ethereum will crash. But if they go through, you know, the events will have a substantial effect on price. So I think that I'll leave it there. We discussed sort of the difference between the Bitcoin blockchain and the Ethereum blockchain, where the Bitcoin blockchain is really a ledger. And the intention was this idea of decentralized, provable digital money. 
Ethereum, we talk about these smart contracts, my Neanderthal brain, the way I basically think of it is Ethereum is a big distributed computer that you can write computer programs for, and you're effectively paying someone else to execute your program. And, and it's all kept in record on the Ethereum blockchain. There's this massive growing space right now on the Ethereum blockchain called DeFi or decentralized finance. And I know that's another angle by which you're discussing the growth of this space as having profound impacts, again, on the supply and demand of Ethereum itself. Can you provide a little bit of background as to what DeFi is and why it's affecting supply and demand of Ethereum? Absolutely. So um, the first thing I want to clarify is, so I'm going to explain kind of a little bit about what DeFi is and um, how it works. And, and then I'm going to talk about how much it's growing. And that might give you the sense that I'm saying DeFi is going to change the world and you should believe in it. And, and that might be true. I just, I don't know yet. Um, what I can say is my thesis is based on the belief that people will think that DeFi is going to change the world. And, and that's a crucial distinction because again, so I'm, I'm actually kind of leaning towards thinking this is a big deal, right? But I don't think in the 18 months that my thesis is operating on that that's going to be affecting the price as much as people's beliefs around what's happening. Uh, and, and I can kind of get into that. So, so just wanted to make that clarification. It's important. Um, so what is DeFi? So, so Ethereum is this layer one blockchain where trans transactions are mediated. Um, DeFi is saying, okay, Ethereum is programmable, so we can program services onto this. So what kinds of financial services do we need? Um, so there are um, lending services that will say, all right, if you give me, um, if you give me one Ether as collateral, I will give you back uh, the equivalent of that Ether in U.S. dollar uh, equivalent tokens. They're called uh, USDC, um, and the category is called stable coins. And these are you know cryptocurrency tokens that are pegged to the value of the U.S. dollar. Um, so that's kind of handy because maybe I want to send someone something that is worth something in dollar bills and not take on Ethereum price risk, right? And so I will lend my Ethereum, uh, or I will exchange my Ethereum, uh, for us dollars, um, us dollar tokens. Another option is I can exchange it for us dollar tokens and I can lend those us dollar tokens out. I can get interest paid in us dollar tokens, which I am way more comfortable with maybe than taking on the Ethereum price risk, right? So now we're starting to talk about services that are, I think, more familiar to people. Uh, they're just happening on a venue that's very unfamiliar, right? But but we're starting to talk about lending. We're talking about uh, exchanges, which instead of a centralized exchange like the NASDAQ, we're talking about a decentralized exchange like Uniswap. Um, we're talking about uh, payments. We're talking about derivatives, uh, whether it's buying options uh, on various tokens. Um, and and then the other thing is there's this emerging uh, NFT. They're called uh, non-fungible tokens. Uh, and so there's an emerging economy around those as well. Um, and so that's, that's kind of this emerging new economy. Um, what I will say is that this space is very, it's in its infancy. Um, you know, the quote unquote blue chip DeFi products, the like premier exchange, for instance, is called Uniswap. The idea for Uniswap didn't exist in January, 2017, right? So that's, that's last cycle. And so the entire last cryptomania cycle happened without any reference to decentralized finance in its, in its current form, at least, you know, there might've been a mad, like imagining the future, but no one had a product out. Um, so, uh, it's a lot of stuff that's emerging now. Um, the important thing to, to see when I say, when I say you don't have to conclude that DeFi is for real, you just have to conclude that people will believe it. What I mean is that you can look at, so there's this metric called total value locked, uh, TVL, and that looks at how much money is being put into collateral, uh, in the decentralized finance space. Um, and what you can see is that right now the total value locked in DeFi is equivalent to 9% of Ethereum's market cap. 
So that's billions of dollars, right? So again, I don't need to tell you that that lending on Ethereum is the future of a fixed income, right? What I can tell you is that clearly there are billions of dollars that have moved into the DeFi space on the belief that lending in DeFi is the future of fixed income. And and that is important because I think I can point to that evidence and say that'll move flows into the space um, because clearly people currently believe that this is the future and are increasingly believing it and they're backing that up with their money. Uh, and so I'm not pointing to research on how great the service is. I'm just pointing to research that people clearly believe it's great. Um, so that distinction kind of follow? Just as a point of clarification, and one of these things, for, for the benefit of listeners, one of the things that really confused me about this space as I started looking into it is why do we need these U.S. dollar stable coins? Right? Because that's a little bit confusing. And, and the best way I can sort of explain it is the fiat space and the crypto space are independent. And once you move your money from the fiat world into the crypto world, there really is no way to hold U.S. dollars anymore. Right. If you are only existing on these cryptocurrency wallets, you have to hold cryptocurrency. And so if you say buy Ethereum and then you want to get rid of your Ethereum and and go back to dollars, but stay within the cryptocurrency universe, these stable coins become an essential part of that. So just for the listeners, if you're wondering, hey, why are these stable coins so important? Why are people lending them? Why are they borrowing them? This is exactly why once you on ramp into that cryptocurrency universe, you're stuck there unless you want to offer it. Yep. And and the other thing that I just wanted to kind of make sure I, I talked about was, um, so I think I mentioned 9% of Ethereum's market cap right now is is locked in these DeFi products, right? And so that's, that's supply that is not uh, circulating anymore. It's been locked up. It's illiquid. Um, and that's been increasing, right? The other thing is... Um, what we've seen is that the more scale that a blockchain achieves, the, the lower these gas fees get, the more attractive these DeFi products are to people. And so um, you can look at centralized blockchains. Um, so there's this example of Binance Chain that is a centralized chain uh, created by uh, Binance, the exchange, um, and is created with low fees. Um, and so there's other problems and it's a longer discussion about Binance chain. But the key to this example is they had low fees and they had this exponential growth on activity on that network. And so when you look at 9% of, of Ether locked up, my contention would be that if Ethereum in the next 12 months can achieve a significant change in uh, the cost, these the, the fees, and, and these fees reduce significantly, we might see the amount of Ether locked up uh, increase dramatically. And again, that comes back to the supply and demand dynamics, because that would be a substantial decrease in supply um, and potentially an increase in demand as people increasingly see Ethereum as a payment processor as something that's like a more viable narrative than they used to think. So I guess we're tying this all together here. We've got sort of three things you're triple having with the ETH triple having. We've got burning from EIP, 1559. You've got your staking for the change from proof of work to proof of stake. You've got this DeFi collateral. What is the total lower supply from now till your thesis runs? How does that triple having come together? Yeah. So, so the first thing, the triple having is a supply demand dislocation on a daily volume scale, right? So I'm not, we're talking about just, um, like every day, there's a, like a small percent of the volume where there's a little bit more demand than supply, and that kind of exerts an effect on price. That's happening in context of a significant amount of Ether that is staked. So as we shift to proof of stake, before we can make that transition, we need stakers to be in place so that we have security the day that we change, have that merge happen. And so um, a significant amount of Ethereum has already been placed in what's called the deposit contract. They'll be the kind of original stakers, right? So that represents currently 3% of Ethereum's market cap is, is, is currently staked. Um, and then uh, there's also the collateral Ethereum that's in the DeFi universe, which currently represents 9% of the Ethereum that's been staked. So currently... 
uh, 12% of Ethereum is locked out of circulating supply. Um, so again, so you have this triple halving, which is a circulating volume supply demand dislocation. It's happening in the context of 12% uh, of the market cap being illiquid. Um, my argument is that these dynamics will ac accentuate um, so over time. And so uh, with when you stake, you collect a yield, right? So that's never been seen with Bitcoin. And I argue that the yields will be higher than people are used to seeing. They could be up to 25% as a reasonable estimate. Um, and if that's the case, the amount of staking will quickly rise. So the yields you get on staking are not like a dividend yield or a bond yield, where as the price goes up, the yield goes down. Uh, this is yields that are issued in Ether. And so they're not uh, USD price sensitive. They are sensitive instead to the number of people who stake. The reason that's important is because you kind of can go either of two ways. Let's say that uh, very few people decide to stake. And so I'm wrong about the illiquidity dynamic, right? If that's the case, then we're going to have a huge upside surprise in how high the staking yield is. So if no one stakes, then you're going to see a 70% staking yield. Everyone's going to start freaking out and buying Ethereum to stake it, right? And so I don't think you can sustainably have a situation where too few people stake, and it's designed to provide an economic incentive for that to happen. On the flip side, the more people at stake the higher that percentage of market cap that gets locked up becomes. Uh, and that is kind of a supply drain. So if, if demand is constant, there's less and less available circulating to buy. It's not exerting an upward pressure on supply, uh, on price, sorry. Um, so that's one thing. And then uh, tying it together with DeFi is over the course of the next 12 months, a lot of scaling solutions are coming on board. We should see uh, these gas fees become cheaper per transaction. And just as the last 12 months have seen a massive increase in the amount of supply locked there, I think that'll just continue. So if, in my estimation, if staking yields get down to 7%, so that means that many people have staked, that would take, uh, and, and let's assume for now that DeFi remains unchanged, that would take us to 20% of Ethereum's market cap that is locked out of circulation. Um, I think that if I think that in the context of you know 1.5 percent treasury yields, uh, you know low equity risk premiums, like a seven percent yield is very reasonable for it to stabilize at. Because I understand that crypto is more risky and it's not going to get down to a three percent yield, but um, I think getting down to a seven percent yield is incredibly plausible. Um, and then I also think that that assumption that the DeFi uh, that the DeFi collateral is just going to remain unchanged is, you know, empirically, there's no evidence for that. It's been accelerating, if anything. And so I think it's very likely that we're going to get to upwards of 30% of market cap uh, that could just be locked out of supply over the next 18 months. So, you know, when we continue this discussion to the demand dynamics and how they change, just keep that in mind that we're going to have this catalyst and the triple halving that kicks off price and gets people to look into things. And then if they like what they find... There's 30% of the supply that's locked up that they can't buy. So I think that'll have a, a tremendous effect on uh, the price and an upwards kind of tailwind. I like the give and go you just gave me. You, you teed yourself up for demand, so let's just go there. <laughs> so let's talk about we have this potential over the next 12 to 18 months for a substantial shock to supply. Um, some of it happening suddenly, some of it happening gradually as some of these services are picked up. What is happening on the demand side of the equation? Yeah, so you know the first the first part of demand is is as I mentioned before, there's a significant yield. And I think that's going to start by driving a lot of demand, right? Um, after that, there's a lot of different elements that start to come into play. So one thing that's been mentioned is um, EIP-1559 causes fees to be burned, right? Currently, if we model the amount of transaction fees on the network, we can see that the amount that's burned is actually going to outweigh the issuance to the, to the stakers. Uh, what that means is that uh, even without a hard cap, uh, Ethereum is functionally going to have a deflationary uh, supply. There will be a peak 
Uh, Ethereum researchers right now are estimating that peak will be 120 million Ether that will ever exist. And every year, the total supply of Ether will decrease by 2%. Deflationary monetary policy. So, one aspect of demand is if there's demand right now for Bitcoin as a store of value, uh, and it has a constant hard cap on supply, and uh, the circulating supply is increasing to kind of approach that hard cap, then if anything, Ethereum should be a better store of value because it's going to have a, a decreasing cap on supply, and its circulating supply is going to be decreasing. There's actually a negative, there's a negative shift in the amount of Ether available. So whatever, whatever like fundamental institutional buy-in you have to Bitcoin, in 12 months from now, the same funds that are looking into uh, Bitcoin will shift their attention and realize, wait a second, all of these arguments, they apply, but they apply even more to Ethereum. Right? So that's one kind of aspect and the the meme around that is if if bitcoin is sound money ethereum is ultra sound money um another thing i bring up is the climate change narrative so there's a lot of focus and flows going on into kind of climate oriented thinking about how can we invest in things that are uh sustainable um and it makes sense we have a, a big issue uh to solve uh as a planet um, and so there's a lot of funds flowing, whether it's into nuclear or into solar um, and a, a number of things. So with Bitcoin's mining uh, proof of work operations, they're wasting a huge amount of electricity. So a criticism that has been raised is that this could this could be causing a significant amount of kind of carbon footprint, that the Bitcoin uh, network has a huge carbon footprint. It's bad for the environment and that um, this is a, a major threat to Bitcoin as an asset. This has been contested vehemently by uh, Bitcoin investors. But one thing I'll put forward is that no ESG manager in their right mind would stake their career on the answer that the kind of the world comes up with to this controversy. So for at least the next 18 months, as people have this debate out loud publicly and, and just try to decide whether Bitcoin or Ethereum, whether Bitcoin is a uh, a threat to the climate. ESG managers can't touch it. It's, it's it's tainted, and maybe two years from now, everyone decides Bitcoin is good for the environment, and that changes. Uh, but right now, the very fact that the argument is being had makes it untouchable. Ethereum, on the other hand, um, is completely climate friendly. Uh, it doesn't have this proof of proof of work. Um, energy expenditure. Uh, and if you look at the holdings of ESG funds, they already hold payment processors. They hold Visa. They hold MasterCard. And so if if the goal of Ethereum is to brand itself, at least in part, as a new pay- kind of payment system, and it provides a yield, which makes it a very like standard kind of uh, investable asset, if Visa pays a dividend, then so does Ethereum. Um, I think there's a potential demand flow from ESG funds. Um, so that's kind of one aspect of demand. Um, I've talked a little bit about DeFi, um, and NFTs already. Um, I think the only other thing that I left out, uh, is, and this is true for both Bitcoin and Ethereum, uh, but it's just something to note is that we're all kind of waiting for the release of an ETF in the space. Um, well, can't talk product, and for, for sure, the U.S. has been hard. Europe has been a lot, a lot easier. Europe has been much more flexible. Canada has been much more flexible. U.S., not so flexible. Yep. Um, yeah, so so from what I know, Canada released four or five uh, Ethereum ETFs very recently. Uh, they've had very significant inflow. So I think the first two days they had like $120 million of inflow. Um, and they've had, um, they've been unique. The flows haven't died down the way that we normally expect in the days following their release. Uh, so there's been just an incredible amount of demand. Uh, again, remember how this works. So if, um, if there's a significant amount of Ethereum supply that's locked up, that doesn't mean that there's a supply of the ETF is locked up. The way the ETF works, you buy the ETF, the money goes to the ETF provider, the ETF provider turns that money around and buys Ethereum so that their their ETF tracks the value of that underlying Ether. So 
the ETF is actually incredibly liquid. You can buy as much of it as you want. Uh, the provider of the ETF just has to take those funds, turn around, and buy this incredibly illiquid instrument, the underlying Ethereum. Um, and this works both ways, right? So if, if, if you have an environment where the ETF holds uh, billions of dollars of Ethereum and everyone starts selling the ETF, uh, it's absolutely going to have immense downside pressure to the price. But in a world where we don't have any ETFs, so you have to start from somewhere, the initial purchases, that's just going to be a dramatic upside pressure on price. And it's an absolute wild card as far as the timeline. So no promises at all that this happens in the 18 months that I have my thesis. But we just know that if and when it happens, it will be incredibly profound. We know that other countries have had it. So the U.S. is lagging in this regard. And so I would not be surprised if even if the U.S. is 12 months, 18 months late to the party, I wouldn't be surprised if the evidence of it being functional in other countries is enough for them to kind of tip their hand and actually make this happen. Um, and if it did, it would be a substantial demand catalyst in the context of this already illiquid kind of mania that I believe we'll be having. And it goes beyond ETFs. I mean, I, I'm an ETF writer, so I have interest in that. Um, but there's also new platforms coming on and making access easier. Um, and there's and, and even uh, platforms I'm starting to work with um, that are to make on-ramping into the ecosystem here easier um, just by working with RAs in a different way. So I think there's there's more beyond the ETF structure that I think is going to come. I think one of the things, uh, you know, we, we talked about Bitcoin as digital gold, and, and here you're starting to talk about the payment rails, ESG elements. Um, I've heard some people make the analogy of ETH as digital oil, like, you know, data is the new oil, and so and, and ETH is like the digital oil. Um, the, or people with digital silver because it's got more industrial applications than gold. Um, you're talking this ESG angle. Do you have a narrative? Like, is it the new computing and, and fintech platform? What What's going to be the dominating narrative if Bitcoin is digital gold? Yeah, so, so if Bitcoin is digital gold, it's important to note that this narrative, uh, we're talking about how are allocators thinking about this long term, right? So not just in the next 18 months, but like if an allocator is thinking I'm a pension plan and I'm going to add 1% of my portfolio to Bitcoin, then I can't just be betting on a short-term flows catalyst. I have to believe in like a long-term investment thesis. What is the role for Bitcoin as an investable asset in my portfolio? So Bitcoin claims digital gold and it claims to be a store of value. And that is kind of a well-understood anchor point. Ethereum it is much harder to capture in a single memeable sentence, right? And so that's pros and cons there, right? So it, it's it's less brandable, but on the other hand, the reason it's harder to capture is because there's a broader addressable market. It has more potential functions, and so that can kind of pay out more. Uh, what I'll say is I think the best way I've heard this put uh, is the so the creators of the Bankless podcast. It's an Ethereum or it's a DeFi Ethereum podcast. They put out this um, meme that Ethereum is what they call a triple point asset. So three points to why you would add it to a portfolio. One is it's a capital asset, which means it has yield. It acts like a bond in a portfolio. Uh, one is that it's going to be a store of value. So we talked about how it'll be a deflationary mon uh, monetary policy. So it'll have store of value characteristics that are better than Bitcoin, better than gold. And then the third is that it's a consumable commodity. So uh, whatever the total addressable market is for, for DeFi, um, that will be you know, the use of this commodity, of use of Ethereum as a commodity will kind of extend to that market. Um, so again, you don't have just one digital oil all in one kind of thesis, but what I'm trying to say is, is Ethereum is bonds. Ethereum is gold. Ethereum is oil. Like it's all three in one asset and that makes it harder to brand, but it also expands the potential and particular the potential to kind of adopt this narrative in the next 18 months as I've kind of described. Well, it's fascinating. I, I actually am working on some model portfolios that equally weight Bitcoin and Ethereum. And so it's interesting. I'm curious because, Corey, you know, you think a lot about model portfolios and as an asset allocator. How are you thinking about it? You talked about being crypto curious. Are you thinking about models that include crypto? How are you thinking about all this? Well, you know, Jeremy, from an allocator's perspective here in the U.S., it is very difficult to get crypto exposure 
So we're still very limited. So it's something I've certainly thought about from my own personal investing perspective. And it's something I'm keeping my eye on because I think it will be very relevant as an allocator going forward. I do expect that uh, with the launch of these ETFs in Canada, it gives the SEC a little bit of coverage in the next 12 to 18 months to actually make a move forward because they can watch those more closely. And I, I do believe we will see an ETF launched here, Bitcoin and Ethereum, by next January. That's sort of my line in the sand, hopefully. That said, what I think is probably where I'm spending the most time brain space thinking about this is how do you allocate between these different cryptocurrencies. If this is truly a winner-take-all type market, right? We talked a lot about Ethereum. One of the potential risks here is that there's Ethereum competitors out there, Polkadot and Cardano uh, and others. And if this is a winner-take-all market, do you want to allocate to these in an equal weight fashion and rebalance? No. What you probably want to do is allocate in a market cap weighted fashion and let the winner run because the losers are ultimately going to lose. And so I think there's some really interesting portfolio construction dynamics and implications uh, based upon your beliefs of how these markets are ultimately going to play out. No, I think we captured uh, the thesis pretty well. It's um, a big catalyst that makes people look into the, the whole Ethereum narrative separately from Bitcoin, which they haven't been doing in the past. Um, it's upcoming significant changes to the network so that when they look into it, they find something exciting and there's demand. And that's in the context of supply that will rapidly decrease just due to economic incentives from staking and from DeFi. Um, and I think that that has the potential to put a lot of upwards pressure on price. And I'm really excited to see how it pans out. I mean, I love how Twitter connects people. I love that Corey found your paper. We came together here for this podcast. And this is what Twitter and the sort of new social world is all about. This was incredible knowledge that you dropped on our, on our listeners. Um, Corey, so thanks for, for joining as co-host here. And Nikhil, thank you. My absolute pleasure, Jeremy. It, it was a real treat, Nikhil, to get to listen to you lay this thesis out. The paper was phenomenal and I'd encourage everyone to give it a read. All right, everybody, you've been listening to Behind the Markets. Thank you. Our discussion is not tied to the offer sale investment products. The views of our guests are their own and not those of Wizard Trees affiliates. Have a great week, everybody. Thanks for listening to the Behind the Markets podcast. If you want to learn more about Wisdom Tree, visit wisdomtree.com. You can also follow me on Twitter at Jeremy D. Schwartz. I'd like to thank Patty Hall for producing our live program on SiriusXM channel 132 and our podcast producer, Daniel Bruno. Join us next week for another edition of the show. Insight from Business Radio, please visit businessradio.wharton.upenn.edu.